Good morning. Okay, we're uh, continuing the series in Acts. So we're up to chapter 8 from verse 4. If you could um, leave your Bibles open there, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for your word that, as described here in Acts, it brings salvation and great joy as people embrace this good news of the glory of your Son and his salvation. Continue even as we hear your word to cause us to look at the ultimate life that is in Christ and to rejoice in him. Continue to realign our priorities to match up with yours and uh, continue to change our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, William Carey in 1768 went to a Baptist church board meeting and said, shouldn't we do something about ministry to the unbelievers, to the heathen? And he infamously got this response. Young man, when it pleases God to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. This led to Carey's famous essay, and and you've got to love this title, an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means in the conversion of the heathen. In other words, God wants his people to be finding ways to bring the great news of Jesus to other people. And the book of Acts shows us by what occurred in the early church various ways in which that happened. Extraordinary ways in which This word about God's Son uh, spread throughout the known world. See, in the book of Acts, Luke wants to emphasise certain things. He didn't tell us everything about what happened. Like any author, he has a particular intention for writing, as he does with his volume two. In his gospel, he wrote to Theophilus that he might know with certainty the truth about Jesus. Now in Acts, he's concerned to show about how the triumph of Jesus manifests as it spreads to the nations. He writes to show what happened and how it happened that the gospel spread to the Gentiles. Really, Acts is not the Acts of the Apostles, as it's sometimes called. It's really the continuing Acts of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and even other believers. And chapter 1 verse 8 is a key verse because the structure of the book is built around this idea that the gospel must go from Jerusalem and Judea to the ends of the earth. So what's God's priority in this world? The message of his son goes from Jerusalem and Judea and penetrates every nation on earth. See, that's what God wants to happen. That's God's priority. And the issue of Acts for us is how by reading this can we get insight into how we can align our priorities with that priority. first few chapters we're told how the disciples received power by the spirit started preaching in Jerusalem and as we go through Acts we see how the gospel spreads through the whole region 
and then to Samaria to the point at the end of Acts where Paul has taken it all the way to Rome. And a primary concern of Acts is that Luke is showing how the message of the sovereign lordship of Jesus radically transforms people and changes cultures. And much has been written about how the gospel has affected Western civilization. Luke records here the effects of the Spirit's work in causing Jesus' lordship to be understood and believed and the radical, visible social impact that this had on people's lives. And this passage very much follows this pattern where the primary question is, how can the gospel cross these hard and fast religious cultural boundaries? How can unclean Gentiles be part of the believing community? How can the message of a Jewish saviour Messiah be embraced by non-Jewish people? And we see more of how this happened in chapter 8, verses 4 to 8. And verse 4 is particularly important because there are many people not named here who were fundamental to the spread of the gospel. Your name, my name, won't ever be in Holy Scripture. But we can contribute to people's eternal relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. As the many unnamed people here did. And there are at least three ways that you'll see throughout Acts and throughout history, three quite poor ways for believers to live in a culture. One poor way to do it is to just be combative all the time, view everyone else in the world as pure enemies. Another poor way to engage culture is just to conform completely to it, to not critique it in the light of the gospel message but just uh, absorb it unthinkingly. And another poor way is to just isolate from it, to just leave them to it. we see here that the persecution in Jerusalem caused the believers to spread and they proclaimed Jesus wherever they went. And this is an important pattern in Acts and the New Testament. As as you'll see in Acts and the New Testament, church is primarily for believers to be built up in Christ from where people can then bring Christ to the community that they live in. See, never in Acts or rarely do people come to church to be saved. It's believers going out and telling their neighbours, telling their sporting colleagues. This is the pattern that we're given. And Luke gives us a particular example here with Philip, not the Apostle Philip, who went to the Samaritans. And this suits Luke's purpose to show how, how the gospel went and will go to the nations. See, Samaritans were despised by Jews as best at half as half breeds, and certainly not considered Jewish in the proper sense, even though they had retained some of the Old Testament teaching and practices. 
so in the movement of the gospel going from Jerusalem to the nations, this is a massive step. This is moving outside Jerusalem and Judea. This is moving outside the Jewish community. And he had uh, the Spirit-given authority, Philip, to do various signs that got people's attention so he could proclaim the word. But a much underestimated aspect of this is described in verse 8. There was much joy. These people were helpless and enslaved in various pagan things and ways. And this message freed them. They were liberated, released, where their physical freedom from various ailments was a visible indication of their greater freedom. And joy is important in this regard. I've been doing a bit more reading recently concerning the new atheist movement and its impact And uh, one good Christian apologist, an Oxford scholar himself, John Lennox, is a very good Christian apologist, if you haven't read his stuff yet. And he he shows convincingly that there's no grounds for joy in a random, meaningless universe. But to be at peace with God through Jesus brings great joy. It transcends uh, the limitations of this fallen world. And the, the joy in the Bible is this substantial sense of well-being because of God's relational covenant presence by his spirit. God is with us. What often robs us of joy is that we listen to our culture which teaches us to focus purely on this world. We're we're attached to our idols. We need to be freed from them because they can't do anything for us. And if we're hoping in this world for joy right at this moment, we'd be very disappointed. So in verses 4 to 8, converted people, full of joy in the Spirit, went out proclaiming Jesus as they experienced his joy, truth and love in deeply transforming ways. That's how the gospel spreads. And then verses 9 to 13, we're introduced to a character called Simon who was something of a pagan miracle worker who had apparently tapped into various spiritual forces and could do some quite impressive things. And the reason for this is that Luke, like all good writers, wants to highlight his broader claims with a specific memorable example. The events surrounding Simon provide an important illustration of the transforming effect of the gospel as it moves from Jerusalem. And this is where testimonies are of great value, isn't it? Because they highlight the dynamic, ongoing work of Jesus in people now 
as he delivers them from their sins. The text says here that Simon called himself great, which even in the ancient world wasn't a good recommendation. But the word could mean something like godlike or powerful. That was his own estimation of himself. But he can see that by Philip, he is confronted with something of true power and greatness. He can see his own limited self-assessment. And of course, this example of Simon will go on to show that there are also bad testimonies where the person thinks it is about them, not about the redeeming lordship of Christ. But it's important to notice at this point, verses 12 to 13, that Simon's belief in Jesus is considered genuine belief at this point. So it says that even he believed and was baptised along with many other Samaritans. So as we know, genuine belief is persevering belief, not just some one-off crisis decision or emotional episode. And Simon will be an important example or warning regarding that. When um, Patrick went to Ireland in the 5th century, he was, he was enslaved, he was a British boy enslaved by the Irish and was able to escape. He was called by God to go back willingly and preach the gospel in Ireland. His method was to confront and persuade the Druids, who were like the religious civic leaders of various Irish clans, and they were reputed to be able to perform certain signs and wonders. Patrick confronted them and persuaded them and demonstrated the the power of God's word with the true power of God coming from a humble former slave who had no attachment to the signs themselves. He just wanted the lordship of Christ to be embedded into that culture. And under God's mercy, it was. It's just that the It's important to realise here and through the example of Patrick, the character of God's actions don't come with magical, ritualistic type necessity. It's a bit like Elijah in the Old Testament. The prophets of Baal were yowling and screaming, trying to get their gods to ignite the fire. Elijah steps up, prays a six-word prayer in Hebrew, God ignites the offering. There's no ritual, no fanfare, no drum roll. It's the authentic power of God displayed for his purpose. See, there's an authenticity about God's actions that can't be fabricated or imitated because God does it. Apostles and other gospel ministers in Acts understand this. There are no rites or formulas that incite God to act. He acts.
acts along with the preaching of his word about Jesus to cause people to see the glory of his son. And often the word isn't accompanied by signs. During the Reformation, which involved extensive gospel renewal, when Calvin was asked, where are your miracles to prove this new teaching? Calvin said, what what new teaching? (laughs) We're going back to the apostles and their gospel message, which was verified by God through their signs. We don't need any new signs because we're not preaching a new word. Now, it won't always be like that. That, That's how it happened in the Reformation. See, we can't tell God what to do and how to go about it. God acts according to his good pleasure to bring glory to his son. And Luke highlights two potential problems for Simon here in verse 13 in the way this is worded. So we're starting to get a hint all might might not be right with Simon. He had an unnatural attachment to Philip because to Simon he's the source of this extraordinary power. Beware the celebrity preacher. Philip knew it wasn't about him, but Simon probably didn't. (laughs) It's about Jesus, not his servants. Two, he was fascinated with signs and power. Look at the contemporary church. A fascination with the spectacular and a love of celebrity preachers. careful we must focus on the right things and we see some of these concerns very importantly demonstrated in the next verse 14 to 17 one of Luke's concerns in Acts is the authority of the apostles and there's a very good reason for that All believers have the spirit and are gifted in different ways. Others than the apostles also did miracles. But Luke has a particular interest in the authority of the apostles because, thankfully, they have a unique authority. So back in chapter 1 of Acts, they had to find a 12th apostle to replace Judas Iscariot because scripture must be fulfilled. And one of the concerns here is that the 12 apostles represent the new Israel as the 12 patriarchs represented Old Testament Israel. Jesus is now the true vine. If you want to be connected to God, it's not through Israel. It's through the true Israel, the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luke throughout Acts shows how apostolic approval is given in a way of verifying true gospel from false. And this is great for us, isn't it? Because we all know there are nutters in the world, false teachers, people that will claim that they know all about God 
it's very important that we have his authentic word to measure things by, isn't it? That's why the Bible is called the canon, the measuring rod. We must measure what is said by the authenticated apostolic word as Luke helps us see here. And again, this whole thing is a big deal in the early church. It's not an issue for us, so we misrepresent how big a deal this is. Can non-Jews really enjoy the same status as Jews in their right standing before God? Very big question in the early church. Can a Gentile equally stand with a Jew before God as righteous? And the unequivocal answer by Luke in Acts is absolutely they can. Even these filthy Samaritans can be right before God, as right before God as a Jew. And so we see here that the Holy Spirit coming on these Samaritans is to demonstrate that the gospel of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit is given to non-Jews. This would be almost blasphemous back to people in Jerusalem. How can God give his Spirit to these Samaritan people in the same way that the Jews have? But this must be verified and substantiated by the apostles. We tend to underestimate the importance of this because it's not an issue for us. Most, most of us here are pure Gentile. But this was one of the biggest issues in the early church. Do Gentiles have the same status as the people of God as the Jews? And the one who gets this most clearly, you'll see shortly coming up in the book of Acts, is Paul. In fact, he will be called the apostle to the Gentiles. God gives him great clarity in seeing that this is the fulfilment of the promises to Abraham. This is how the nations will come in. Now, of course, this passage, for many of us living through the 80s particularly, is connected to questions of the baptism of the Holy Spirit being a definite second blessing after conversion. Experienced by speaking in, or evidenced by speaking in tongues. So most of us here would have probably been told at some point after we were converted, okay, now you're converted, now you need to seek a second extra experience of God's Spirit to be effective in ministry or something along those lines. And what some people use to support that idea is of a definite second blessing is this passage. They are point out here that in this passage there was a delay between belief and being water baptised and receiving uh, the Spirit. But we must understand this in the context of Luke's concern to show that the Spirit really is for non-Jews or for Samaritans and Gentiles. That's all Luke's trying to show here. <laughs> Remember, Luke is describing here what happened 
not what must happen every time in every conversion. This is a transition period between the old and the new. And a good way to illustrate this is ask yourself the question, when were the apostles converted? When were they true believers? Well, if Jesus is to be believed, Nathaniel was an authentic Israelite in whom there's no guile before he'd even met Jesus. So at least Nathaniel was a believer before he even knew Jesus under the terms of the old covenant. Or were they believers when they met Jesus? Or were they not believers until Jesus had died so their sins could be forgiven? Or was it not until Pentecost when the Spirit came? You can see the problem, can't you? There's this transition between the old and the new. We don't live in that time. We live after Pentecost. People before Jesus came believed the Old Testament scriptures and were saved. We now know clearly that the gospel is for all people. That's why verses 14 to 17, their receiving of the Spirit is described in terms of the original Pentecost event and why it was necessary for apostolic involvement. Because they must verify this. Just let me briefly read from chapter 10, the conversion of Cornelius, which describes a similar type thing, but in terms of pure Gentiles and the Spirit coming. So from 1044 it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Surprise, surprise. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptising these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And Luke sometimes, to help us think about this, verses 18 to 25, or he continues to help us think about this, shows us by the example of Simon what happens when we focus on the wrong things. Verses 18 to 25 are disturbing at a number of levels, not least because Simon has made the same mistake that can still be made today, which is that people think they control the spirit. (laughs) So, but think about it carefully. Do you, can you control God? Can you tell God what to do? The Spirit acts through the apostles who themselves at least understood this, that they don't control the Spirit. No one tells God what to do or how to do it. The word pray means to ask, not to tell. 
In fact, implied in the word pray is to humbly ask someone much greater than ourselves. And we see the basic problem, verse 18. Simon wants power to do signs for the sake of doing signs. Again, unfortunately, he's not alone in the history of the church. And he offers to pay money to get this power, which again is a very offensive and contrary to the nature of the gospel at a fundamental level. And Peter says so. Peter knows the problem, which is the problem for every person. The corruption of the human heart, our love of idols and self. That's what it boils down to. That's our problem. And that was Simon's problem manifest in the particular way it manifested in Simon. And verses 21 to 22 make this perfectly clear. A final verdict on Simon here is difficult. So if we were to ask, what does Luke think of Simon's spiritual status? Well, it's almost like Luke has deliberately left the question open. It's unresolved. And like any good account, sometimes things are unresolved. See, there was a way back for Simon, though, if he repented. These circumstances really tested his heart and what he loved. Did he love Jesus, the true deliverer, or did he love the signs and authority to dispense such power? Also, there's no indication he did what Peter said he should do here, which is repent. See, when he says to Peter, ask for Uh, yeah, pray for me in accordance with what you've said that none of this happens to me. Did he do that because he feared this power that could destroy him? Or did he really want to be saved from his corruption of heart? We're not told. It's left open. Maybe Luke leaves this open because it's a good object lesson, isn't it? Sometimes all believers seem to precariously exist on that line between belief and unbelief. Or between fascination with the benefits of the gospel and real love for Christ. So do we love the benefits that Jesus gives to us or do we love the person of Jesus? between wisdom and idolatry. See, there's lines, aren't there, that we can sometimes be precariously close to. And Simon was precariously close to that line. Maybe, and the real danger for Simon here is that he wants to avoid consequences, not amend his life and be delivered from his corruption. Which is what repentance means. 
It means we're turning from our corruption of heart, our love of idols, to the true and living God and his salvation expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just hardship and suffering that test what it's in our heart and where our allegiances are, but blessing and abundance can do the same. For in the case of this Simon, the love of miraculous authority. See, a lot of things can test what's in our heart. Another disturbing thing, again, not absent in today's church, is the fascination with power and signs for their own sake. The only person fit to govern such power without hint of corruption is Jesus. Even when Jesus was here, as Luke points out in his Gospel, people wanted the signs and miracles and benefits of his presence but missed what it points to. God is saying to us, if you want to see true greatness and glory, look at my son. See, it doesn't matter what gifts you have. Whatever gift you have, use it. The glorious thing to Luke is that the gospel really is for the Gentiles. We can be delivered from our sins and have equal standing before God as the apostles themselves. This is glorious. How complicated do we make things? How many rules and rituals do we have to add to this extraordinary message? Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, died for sins, was raised to life so that whoever believes is saved, receives the Spirit and enters the kingdom of God. That's it. Causing us to be filled with inexpressible joy. Keep following Jesus and proclaiming his words. The next generation need to hear and see this message. And there are still many nations and even households in our culture where it's not properly gone. This is God's priority. The book of Acts reveals God's priorities by his actions. Hallelujah which helps us align our priorities more with his. Hallelujah. And in this case, helps us keep from seeking to use the gospel and its benefits to our own corrupt ends. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word. Uh, Help us to take from this word. Uh, your priorities in this world. Uh, Help us to seek you for the good of those around us and their salvation. Help us to align our decisions and actions uh, with your priorities in the world. Uh, Please help us to see in the example of Simon uh, where it can all go horribly wrong. Uh, Please help us to not... uh, 
miss the forest for the trees and to not miss what all these things pointed to which is the glory of your son in whom is the greater and better Adam who heads uh, the community of your renewed people continue to guide our lives and help us at this time to find ways to bring this word to those around us and we pray for the sake and glory of Jesus Amen. Amen.